We were fat teens back when plus-sized meant anything above a size 12. Life was brutal. A bloodbath. Today, we look different, but still see the world through the lens of our fat girl experience. Because once you go fat, you never go back. This is Full Fat. Yes, and I'm Sam Luck, going free solo for this one, as I have been for every second episode of season two. And joining me today from sunny LA, I'm assuming it's sunny, uh, is someone who I've been so looking forward to talking to. This guy has a background in social science, a master's degree in nutrition and dietetics. He's a registered dietitian nutritionist and has a strong research background, having been published in the Journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Most recently, our busy guest is working away on the last year of his PhD in public health from the University of California, with some research linking nutrition to mental health across the life course. And alongside all of that, he has founded Nutrition in Recovery, an organisation dedicated to the promotion of physical and nutritional wellness as primary components of recovery from behavioural health challenges. As part of this, he works with over a dozen treatment centres in Southern California, helping those struggling with addiction and disordered eating find their way into sustainable recovery. So please join me in welcoming David Wiss to the Full Fat Fold. Thank you so much for having me. I always love a warm welcome and I'm so looking forward to this chat. It's always fun when people do my intro for me and I'm thinking, well, would I have said that? I can imagine. It must be weird. It's like having a hype woman. Off the top, David, something I really want to know is what led you to making that connection between nutrition and mental health? Yeah, such a great question. I, um, I got into the field originally because I was interested in physical fitness, and I think a lot of people find their way into the nutrition space that way. Uh, once upon a time, I was working as a trainer, and I wanted to do nutrition for athletes. And pretty soon when I got into school, I realized that was crowded. People were doing it. It wasn't that meaningful to me. And I saw that there was much opportunity for nutrition in mental and behavioral health. And I, you know, I personally have my own journey with recovery that was very important for me to link nutrition to. So I figured let's go where people haven't gone. Instead of going where everyone's going, why don't we move in a space that no one's gone to and blaze some new terrain? So my master's thesis was on nutrition and substance abuse. And I was able to start linking nutrition to the brain and then also linking nutrition to the mind. And those are two different things, right? So not just thinking about how does food affect our uh, neurochemical and hormonal pathways, but the way that we think about food and our eating behavior. And so it just opened up into a whole world of uh, new information for me. And that includes eating disorders, uh, food addiction, and more recently, I've moved into other mental health spaces like depression and anxiety. Do we know what comes first? Does food play a role in the onset of mental health issues, do you think? Well, in, in public health, we're always thinking about directionality. And uh, I often talk to people about recovery. And I think it's not wise to make broad statements about what things come first. I think we always need to think about stuff on an individual basis, right? And I think for one person, disordered eating might be a cause of uh, another mental health issue. And for the other person, it might be a consequence, right? For one person, food was the first thing uh, that really 
set the train tracks on the brain. The neuroplasticity was already taking place early, uh, whereas other people developed food-related issues and um, links between nutrition and mental health became much obvious in adulthood. So it's important to recognize the heterogeneity that's possible uh, in that conversation. Some of our listeners are familiar with the concept of food addiction, but others may not be. So could you talk for a minute about the difference between food addiction and eating disorders and and just the overall spectrum of disordered eating as you see it? Because I've heard you speak about that before and I found it really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. There are uh, three classic eating disorders. Most people know anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. There's definitely some more nuance in the DSM-5. We have these feeding disorders and there's other um, unspecified disorders of eating. And um, food addiction has been on the scene only for the last 15 years in the research community. Of course, in the the world of recovery, it's been around much longer. There's been 12-step groups that have focused on food addiction since the 60s, and there's even some literature before. But food addiction really emerged in 2007 and 2008 with the advent of the Yale Food Addiction Scale. And it spurred a lot of research, which looked at addiction-like eating based on criteria for substance use disorders. And it has just spurred so much debate in the academic and treatment communities. Uh, Part of the debate stems from this idea that uh, food itself can't be addictive, therefore it's more of an an eating addiction, people like to call it. So the debate of whether it's a substance-related addiction or a process addiction, that one's been ongoing and there's still a lot of people who seem to disagree. And the other debate is about the role of food addiction in the context of eating disorder. So when we study food addiction, it can be looked at at a population level where you look at, for example, nationally representative data sets, and you're able to figure out that 16% of people have food addiction, right? And one of the major criticisms of those kind of investigations are that they're not necessarily capturing people that might have eating disorders that essentially make it look like they have a food addiction when really they're not actually having the kind of food addiction that's being described or trying to be captured by the scale, they really have extreme dieting behavior. So it manifests in food addiction symptoms. So the the two major debates as I see them is one, uh, is food addiction a substance addiction or a process addiction? And two, what about people that have clinically significant eating disorders? And it goes back to one of your original questions did the food addiction drive the eating disorder or did the eating disorder drive the food addiction? And do we need to really talk about how these things are similar or different or disentangle? There's a lot of people in the food addiction world who just see their food addiction as an eating disorder, but might not meet clinically significant criteria for one of those three main eating disorders. So there's a lack of clarity if food addiction should be conceptualized as a substance-related disorder or if it should be thought of as an eating disorder, or if it should be thought of as a process addiction. And within that space, there's opinions galore. A lot of the effort that I've made in the last few years is to bridge the gap between the different campsites and say, this can be true and this can be true. It doesn't have to be either or, it can be both. And that's been a a real important mission of mine to talk about how food addiction can exist with eating disorders. It can be a substance-related addiction, can also be a process addiction. It can be all of those things. So we need to think about these things at the intersection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because 
in my experience, you know, the program that I have worked um, for the last decade um, on and off is a kind of a one size fits all approach. A lot of these programs are. And, you know, um, my experience is that you see such variation. Like, I don't know if you've seen, there's a new series out with Rose Byrne. She's an Aussie actress. It's called Physical. It's about this um, this woman, you're nodding your head. Okay, cool. So it's this woman who has a binge eating disorder. And it's the first time I've really seen that characterised on television. And she actually goes all out. Like she rents a hotel room. She gets like three, you know, burger meals from a place. And then she goes to the hotel and binge eats them. And then says what every person who's had any experience with this says, you know, it'll it'll end today. That's it, the last time. And I, it was funny because I watched it and I related to some aspects of it, but I also was really acutely aware of how my experience is different to hers. Like she has this mental dialogue where she's constantly criticising other people for being heavy for their body weight. You know, I never had that. I hear such different stories in recovery. So how does a one size fits all approach fit within that? Great point. It's a point I've been trying to make for many years now is that eating disorders and disorders of eating are far more heterogeneous than most people think. And the problem is that with a very heterogeneous problem, okay, uh, people are looking for solutions. And when you offer someone a treatment or a solution, whether it be from a residential or an intensive outpatient or a 12-step program or someone's online program, uh, it's very, very difficult to scale these things to meet the needs of all the different ranges of people that walk into the door. So this is why there's a lot of disagreement, debate, and why people are making the argument that harm is being caused. So if someone has a treatment model, let's say 12-step, that's abstinence-based, and someone that has a lot of internalized weight bias and a lot of shame and a lot of restriction goes into that program, it's possible that um, the program could be doing more harm than good, right? Similarly, if someone that has a severe food addiction goes into a classic eating disorder treatment center where they're teaching them how to eat it every single day and be inclusive and be moderate, that might be doing that person more harm than good. So what we lack is people that have the um, wherewithal to discern and say, this is the right model for this person, this is the right model for this person, because people are bouncing around and going to different uh, uh, experts, going through different 12-step um, different fellowships and different eating disorder treatment centers, and they're very confused. And I've seen the experts start arguing with each other about what's right and what's wrong, and I just see so many people frustrated. Uh, part of the work that I'm trying to do is Think about the entire spectrum of possible psychiatric diagnoses, thinking about if someone is a, uh, a depressed individual or they're anxious or there's body image issues or if they have PTSD or if there's other co-occurring substance use disorders, the role of early life adversity and all these other factors which would help someone figure out what might be the best model for them. And most importantly, how can people eventually get to a place where they're sort of model free? They're not even doing a model. They're actually, you know, using a combination of different philosophies and they've really made a individualized approach for themselves in terms of eating, how they think about food and how they want to set themselves up for long-term success. Yeah, that's very interesting to me too, because like I've shared, I've had a windy road um, in recovery and 
you have this beautiful support system around you when you're working the program well, but when that falls apart, you can end up feeling kind of like the rug's been pulled out from under you. So I'm curious, do you encourage your clients who have perhaps a more serious food addiction issue to make a 12-step program a part of their recovery process, a part of that support system? I think one of the reasons that I have felt uh, successful and helpful with people is because I have a tendency to offer people multiple perspectives on things. And I think that's a very scientific approach. I'm in a position where I'm well-versed in a lot of these different philosophies and approaches. So I like to sit through and sift through some of the pros and cons with people and say, you know, these are different options that exist. This is how a physician sees this problem. This is how a psychodynamic psychotherapist sees this problem. This is how your personal trainer might see this problem. This is how a dietitian who's been trained this way might see your problem and offer people a wide range of different things to consider and then really encourage them to figure out where their spirit is calling them and then be a really good guide along the way. I love that because you're allowing people to access their own higher power in making decisions, right? Because a lot of the time, I think when you're someone coming to a program like this, it can be easy to just discount that inner wisdom that we all have. So I love that you, I'm just commenting here, but I love that you uh, encourage your clients to access that wisdom. Yeah, there's wisdom that comes from uh, professionals. There's wisdom that comes from uh, individuals, especially if you're talking about working a program and a fellowship, there's people that have been doing it longer. And then there's wisdom that comes from within. And I think it's it's really wise to uh, go internally and, and also seek counsel and to, to encourage people to figure out what's going to be not only true for them, but what's going to be sustainable over the long haul. So I do a lot of talking about the difference between the short term and the long term. There's a lot of things that might work really great in this week or this month that might not play out well over many years. And so that's an important thing that people need to think about, the trade-off between what seems like managing an immediate crisis or setting yourself up for a relationship to food uh, over the life course. So where does harm reduction play a role here? Because I'm hearing that coming through in our conversation and it's something that can be frowned upon a little bit in recovery circles to kind of look at harm reduction rather than straight line recovery. For me, like how that shows up is with food neutrality, like we're encouraged to strive for food neutrality and to be honest, a lot of the time I don't even really want that, you know. I, I still want to enjoy my food in a safe space. So, yeah, I'm just curious what you think about harm reduction because, you know, I feel like I'm supposed to want that neutrality. To each our own, right? And um, I do think that, you know, what truths we find in the recovery process can evolve over time. So it's really important for people to know that you could learn something uh, about yourself, whether it be uh, a, a trigger food or an abstinent behavior, and that could absolutely be true. But as recovery uh, ensues and underlying stressors heal and trauma heals and relationship dynamics change, uh, one's strategic approach to nutrition could change, and it should. So I always encourage people to welcome the uncertainty, to be willing to let it evolve over time. You know, the, the approach that worked really well for you last year might not be working so well today. 
and you might be doing something totally different in five years. And just to stay open, stay open and alert to the signals of the universe. People get too attached to one thing. And I've, I've met with people, they're like, I've been eating the same breakfast every day for eight years. And I was like, no wonder you're binging. Your brain is just looking for some kind of new novel experience, right? So I might tell someone like, okay, no, no, no repeating of the breakfast two days in a row. You got to switch it up. And pretty soon their brain's getting new stimuli and uh, there's less need for um, uh, maybe nighttime binge eating. Yeah, I love that openness to experimentation. And I guess it's part of that openness to being wrong too, because I've been proven wrong many times. Another thing you mentioned was the context around addiction. And I think that's really fascinating. You've written about food deserts and social issues that can impact. Can you share kind of a little bit about your research into that and what you've what you've discovered? Yeah, thank you. Uh, originally, my interest in food addiction was at the individual level. So we're thinking about for a person that has other co-occurring mental health issues, how do we think about conceptualizing treatment and recovery? And then part of my PhD at UCLA was thinking about population level challenges. So communities and thinking about groups rather than people. In, uh, in public health, we actually don't think about individuals, we actually think about groups. So to think about food addiction on a population health level, we start thinking less about what should this person eat? And we start thinking about policy, right? If someone lives in an area where there's a lot of um, poverty, a lot of neighborhood crime, there's a lot of access to highly palatable foods. And um, it's, it's only reasonable to expect people to um, gravitate towards highly palatable foods if there aren't other options. So the, the, the questions that are being posed that are still not answered is how does one's community and neighborhood contribute to addiction like eating? And how does, um, you know, food addiction differ by culture, including race and ethnicity, um, etc. So I, I think that food addiction at a pu public health level has implications for policy. And that means thinking about how do we regulate food companies from being able to prioritize their private profits over public health in a way that um, you know certainly has created significant burden on the healthcare system, how can we reverse some of those negative effects? And I don't have a lot of solutions there. There are people that do in terms of let's put a tax on this, let's uh, require um, certain guidelines or standards for, for nutrition. I think a lot of those things are highly debatable, highly controversial, because now you're talking about capitalism. We're not just talking about nutrition. So I'm more of a listener in those conversations. Um, I do think that uh, uh, approaching food addiction science from a public health standpoint will have more of an impact than trying to treat people at the individual level. But I think that making uh, moving that needle in the U.S. is really difficult and I, I don't see that happening anytime in the immediate future. However, I do think that as more data shows up in the next decade, it will be abundantly clear that government might have to step in with these multinational billion dollar food companies that uh, many people would say are getting away with murder. I wonder as you're saying that whether, you know, if, if we as individuals 
need to collectively move governments. Perhaps there is that connection from like working with people at the individual level, spreading that grassroots awareness so that we get to a stage where the demand is there so that we can march the steps. And I think that's already happening. I think people are mobilizing. I see more and more people moving toward sugar-free lives. People are waking up to the truth. The, uh, the movement is in full force. And I see it. Uh, I've been fortunate to be a, a part of it. People really waking up to the truth about what we put in our bodies. And, you know, at the same time, you know, there's a lot of people who are not reached by this information, who don't even have this on their radar. And that's the majority. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I sometimes wonder, like, I mean, look at alcohol, like alcoholism is a, a broadly accepted idea. And we still have, a, you know, the alcohol industry thrives, you know, like, why is just the acknowledgement of food addiction so dangerous? I mean, I can I understand that it's about dollars, billions of dollars. But we're still talking about a small percentage of the population that are acutely affected by this, no? Well, it depends on how you define affected, right? You could say that everyone's affected by food addiction, right? Because, you know, some of these um, ingredients are so ubiquitous in the food supply, they've conditioned our brain to expect food to taste a certain way. And now we're growing, kids are growing up not liking the taste of vegetables because they're so used to highly palatable foods, right? So that's another right. look at food addiction, not okay, this person's a food addict and this person's not, but like the, the food environment is such that these uh, children are growing up and they're developing really strong preferences for food and they do so at the expense of all the other foods that they don't eat. They're not eating broccoli and I'm speaking broadly. Of course, there's a lot of children who are, but the, the point is, is uh, yes, food addiction affects more people than we think, but it might not be at the clinically significant level it might be looked at as a, uh, a broad, uh, you know, societal problem once again. Mm -hmm. Another thing I wanted to talk to you about was the subject of weight. Uh, Natalie, my co-host, and I grew up fat in the 90s, a time when Kate Moss had the body we were told we should want and heroin chic was a legitimate trend. And there's been such a transition in recent years that now we live in a world where Lizzo shakes her ass on Instagram and we're all like, bring it on. But weight is still very much a part of the conversation when it comes to food addiction. There are people staunchly espousing body positivity out there. There are people who feel recovery and weight loss are intrinsically connected. Others who believe recovery can happen without significant weight loss, that confidence, stability and self-esteem can, can be as much a part of recovery. And then individuals who remind us that so-called normal or slim bodies do not necessarily represent wellness. So I know it's a long question, but I wanted to know how you navigate all of that as someone working in this field at a time like this. I think it's safe to say that human minds are limited. We all have our biases and uh, oftentimes we only can see the world through the lens of what we've learned previously and the assumptions that we make. And so we tend to bias information that's measurable and weight seems to be an easy thing to measure. You said earlier in the podcast that you were interested more in your mental health. And a big part of the work that I do is getting people to think about improvements in their mental health rather than just improvements in their weight. 
But the problem with that is that it's not easy to measure. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, it can happen slowly over the course of several months. People are sleeping better, maybe a little bit sharper. The, the mind's not as hijacked by obsessive thoughts. Um, they have more joy, less anxiety. But those aren't things that can easily be measured. So I think a lot of people will end up wanting to put their emphasis on what can be measured, and that is pounds or kilograms or BMI, wherever you are in, in the world. Mm -hmm. So uh, the data has shown that weight loss isn't what people thought it was. It's not just a matter of calories in, calories out, and that most people who lose weight end up gaining it back. There's theories like the set point theory. And as a result, there's revolutions of people that are saying, let's stop focusing on weight. Let's focus on other things. And I would say that I'm one of those people. People come to my office for help, and I've, I've helped people recover from very serious food addictions and not have it be about weight loss at all. It's just about their, their mental health. And I think a lot of people would say that they would be satisfied with that outcome, and a lot of people are. But I think a lot of people still deep down really just want to lose a lot of weight. And that's something that I have to navigate with people I think the old school models of 12 step really focused on how much weight did someone lose. I think it's safe to say that in 2021, weight science is different than it was in even 2001 or 1981. I think that the gut bacteria is changing, our endocrine systems are changing, there's environmental changes. Weight loss is not what it used to be. There's evolution happening. Obviously, it doesn't happen that quickly, but there's a lot of processes that are making weight regulation different. So we need updated models. It's not just about how many calories do you eat and how much do you burn. And people are still stuck on those models. Now, don't get me wrong, that model might be the right fit for someone, but it's totally the wrong fit for someone else. I've seen people exercising and eating low amounts of calories and their body's just not in a state where it wants to lose weight. And those are things that people need to know. That nutrition and weight science is also an individual thing. And we might need to do some, some blood tests or some stool testing, saliva testing, and look at different things in order to figure out what might be deficient, insufficient, or malfunctioning. Mm -hmm. Something I've noticed in certain recovery circles and in certain meetings is that there can be a bit of fear, like especially when someone is off the beam, as we say, and I've certainly been there many times where my program's a little bit off. And what I've noticed is that sometimes people can see weakness in someone's program as this contagion, like it's contagious, which can be pretty isolating for that individual. I was just curious if you had anything to add or to say about that. A lot of the problems that you're describing do come from the social hierarchies that are generated by how much time abstinent or sober does someone have. And so this idea that you worked really hard to build up uh, two years and then there was a little bit of a slippery dessert, but then some sponsor tells you that you're back to zero days and now this person feels defeated and they no longer want to be a part of the fellowship. They don't want to take a thing and then they go on a two-week run. And um, I like to encourage people to consider harm reduction approaches, as you've mentioned, um, but really to think about things on an individual basis. I mean, what's Recovery for one person is not recovery for the next person. You have people that have alcohol and drug histories that are, you know, chewing tobacco and smoking cigarettes and doing energy drinks all day long and gambling 
and having um, high risk sexual behavior that by a lot of people's standards are 100% sober. And then you could have someone that does none of those things and they cook their own food and they do low dose psilocybin or CBD with THC. And those are, there's someone else to say, no, you're not sober. And they're like, no, you're not sober. You're not sober. And then with food, it's the same stuff, right? You get people in the eating disorder world that'll look at someone who is on a rigid food plan and say, you're in your eating disorder because you're restricting. And then the person on their food plan is saying, no, I'm actually abstinent. I finally have peace in my mind. You're the one that's eating Cheetos and, um, and Slurpees, which is like, uh, uh, everyone knows what a Slurpee is. Yeah. And so people are left divisive and confused and extrapolating information that they learn from a, a therapist or a sponsor or a fellow onto themselves. And it's really hard for people to get down to the brass tacks of their individual level truth. Mm -hmm. And that's the work. And that requires being able to piece together information from different sources, but most importantly, to figure out what's true at the uh, individual level. Yeah, sometimes I need to be reminded that when I'm pointing at others, I'm kind of missing the point. I'm not on the right path because others need to navigate their own journeys too. As a, as a clinician, right, my job is to help people figure out the type of recovery that's going to work for them and to do some trial and error. And so, yes, I, I have learned that people are doing the finger pointing thing, um, whether it be on social media or in other settings, because they're looking to reduce their cognitive dissonance. When someone has internal conflict about something and they're not sure, people are going to dig their heels into a position more and say, this is what's true for me. Therefore, this is, must be what's true for you. And that's just part of the human condition. And it goes back to one of my original points. We're all humans. We're all biased. We all have limitations. We all filter the world through the lens of our own experience. And we tend to extrapolate based on what we know. But there's so much that we don't know. Hmm. And we don't know what we don't know. And that's a really important place for people to live their lives and to stay open to uh, the evolution of 12-step, the evolution of clinical approaches to eating disorders and addictions, this research uh, that's going on with psychedelics. There's just so many new exciting things happening that even someone like me that I have all my biases, I need to just pause and say, okay, like you mentioned earlier, maybe I'm wrong. It's true. And I am wrong often. So there's a phrase I hear in programs sometimes, stick with the winners. I always hated that one because I think it implies that there are losers. And it's had me feeling perhaps that I don't belong at times or that I might be better going out on my own. And that kind of leads me to my next question. Is food addiction forever? One of the questions that I've got often from podcasts and conversations like these is people want to know, you know, is it possible that a food addict, a real hardcore advanced stage food addict would eventually be able to um, eat foods in, in moderation, right? And like, you know, my answer is, uh, you know, is obviously with these kind of questions, it depends, right? It depends. There's going to be people who can't and there's going to be people who can. But no matter how true that is, that it depends, people are still going to ask questions about people broadly rather than individuals. So it goes back to that original point is we always want to answer questions differently when we're talking about people as a whole or individuals because they're, they're not the same answer. What does your process look like, David? Like if I'm someone that's halfway across the world but wants to work with you, how does that work? What, what does that look like? 
Yeah, I, I'm very fortunate to be able to work with people from all over and uh, I'm you know, able to do that as a practicing dietitian in California. Um, uh, virtual work works amazingly and we all learned that through the pandemic. And I even had experiences doing virtual work where I was like, this is almost better because we're using apps and I'm emailing files and we're using the technology. So, you know, there's always the challenge with the time difference when I work in Europe, we're gonna figure it out. I gotta either wake up early or they gotta wait. We gotta figure that part out. Mm -hmm. But, you know, before I work with someone, I usually have a chat and make sure we're a good fit. I'm never rushing people into my practice. I wanna make sure that uh, I manage expectations and describe really well what I do. Prior to working together, I have someone fill out about 15 or 20 minutes worth of forms online. Mm -hmm. So I'm assessing various mental health uh, conditions, history, food preferences, somatic symptoms, that kind of thing. And then on the first meeting, I do a full comprehensive intake and assessment. And I use the uh, instruments, uh, the validated questionnaires, as well as my clinical intuition and all the other information that I collect. And by the end of the first session, I'm able to paint a picture of things we might be able to work on together. And I usually don't do too aggressive um, changes each, you know, on the first meeting, just start with two or three things and then ease into more change. And I typically work with someone over five sessions or more. We're looking at doing long-term sustainable behavior change. And it's such a pleasure what I get to do. I get to talk to people from all over the world about food, body, recovery, and uh, help people figure out their individual level truths and essentially get people to move toward freedom, which I think is what recovery is all about. Amen. I agree. David, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me on Full Fat today. I had fun. It flew right by. Nutritioninrecovery.com is where you'll find David's publications, links to his social channels, and of course, to his services. If you enjoyed this episode, please head into Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. You can also follow us on Instagram if you don't already at This Is Full Fat. Natalie is back for our next two episodes, the finals of the season, the first of which is all about cancellation. That one's dropping September 2nd. But until then, Stay greasy, ladies and gentlemen and non-binary folks too.